This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, today's program, I think we're going to try and be a little bit lighter in tone than uh, average. It is summer, after all. It's occurred to me that this radio program has uh, some parallels to a newspaper column. And although Radio Parallax is not consciously trying to imitate the likes of Herb Cain, we realize there certainly are some parallels. And today we're going to meander around a bit just and see where things wind up. Oh, and by the way, thanks to all of you who wrote in in the wake of last week's show on July 15th to acknowledge the birthday of the host of this program. Thank you. I did say that I was going to go out and do some dangerous thing uh, of one sort or another, and I did go out onto San Francisco Bay in a kayak, but it wasn't as dangerous as all that. But I fully intend to go out and generate a more hair-raising story and then report on that for you, dear listener. And I will, of course, be striving at all times to avoid winning a Darwin Award. Well, we'll start, as we like to do every week, with on this date in history, the date in question being the 22nd of July. In 1917, Alexander Kerensky became prime minister of the Russian provisional government following the overthrow of the Tsar. Kerensky unfortunately failed to deal with the economic problems in Russia, and his insistence on remaining in World War I led to his overthrow by the Bolsheviks later that same year. Seventeen years later on this date here in the U.S., John Dillinger, proclaimed to be America's public enemy number one by the FBI and the Yellow Press, was killed in a hail of bullets by federal agents. It was basically an assassination. In a fiery bank robbing career that lasted just over a year, Dillinger and his associates had robbed 11 banks for more than $300,000. For more on that topic, we refer you to our own archives at Radio Parallax for our interview with author Brian Burrow about his book, Public Enemies, which was quite a bit better than the movie last year with Johnny Depp, which, which wasn't bad. Ten years later on this date, July 22, 1944, the Breton Woods Conference in New Hampshire created the International Monetary Fund. Also the World Bank, and something else is escaping my mind at the moment. But the IMF was created to maintain a stable system of buying and selling currencies so that payments in foreign money could take place between countries in a smooth manner. Well, that was the idea anyway. I guess it was successful. Well, in retrospect, I wish there had been more barriers to my purchase of the euro a couple years ago. On July 22nd of 1975, in what must have been surely a slow day in the U.S. of House of Representatives, both the House and Senate voted to restore the American citizenship of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. No word on any reaction from General Lee, who passed away in 1870. And finally, it was on July 22nd in 1982 that 2,200 couples were married in the biggest wedding ceremony in history. The mass marriage was performed by the Reverend Sung Mung Moon of the South Korean Unification Church. It was performed in New York City. And you know, a lot of people have thought that Unification Church is kind of a cult. But Radio Parallax would like to point out the difference between a religion and a cult, which is as follows. Religions are bigger, although some would add bigger with political power. And I got to say, I think that's about right. Although that, like all the opinions heard on this program, we should note, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or 
the regents of the University of California, none of whom were ever married in a mass marriage ceremony. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal Frank Sinatra, who once said this about rock and roll. It's the most brutal, ugly, desperate, vicious form of expression it has been my misfortune to hear. And our bonus quote, also from Frank Sinatra, is, When lip service to some mysterious deity permits bestiality on Wednesday and absolution on Sunday, cash me out. Well, we're pretty sure Frank didn't hang out with either Jimi Hendrix or the Reverend Moon. Our quip of the day, we've been sitting on this one for months. Uh, I don't know how this got missed. Our quip of the day comes from Oscar time, and is the observation made by Jay Leno that Catherine Bigelow won Best Director for The Hurt Locker about the Iraq War, but she forgot to thank the two people without whom this film could never have been made, Bush and Cheney. Our joke of the day is ex-Sacramento radio host Mark Williams. Now, normally we have a certain sympathy for radio hosts, at least most of them. But most of them would not include Rush Limbaugh, Tom Sullivan, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, or the fired Mark Williams. When he first went to work for KFBK in Sacramento, he distinguished himself by demanding that people picket the Capitol. Why? Al Gore was trying to steal the 2000 election, and citizens needed to go out and protest. We even know one knucklehead that did. But, lest there be any doubt that Mark Williams is a true blue horse's ass, we have to quote Peter Heck's article in the Sacramento Bee about the little dust-up between Mark and other representatives of the Tea Party movement. Apparently, the National Tea Party Federation spokesman David Webb announced last weekend that we have expelled Tea Party Express and Mark Williams. Apparently, the Tea Party Express was one of the nation's largest Tea Party groups, and Mark Williams, until recently, was its chairman. Apparently, this controversy among Tea Party factions arose when Mark Williams penned a letter to Abraham Lincoln under the name of NAAC President Benjamin Jealous in the wake of the organization passing a res resolution to repudiate the racist element and activities, which it alleges are part of the Tea Party culture. Williams's fictional letter to our 16th president said, and I quote, We colored have taken a vote and decided we don't cotton to that whole emancipation thing. Freedom means having to work for real, think for ourselves, and take consequences along with the reward. That's too much for us colored people. And we demand it to stop. Now, KFBK, to its credit, fired Mark Williams after he had blasts against illegal immigrants, social welfare parasites, and America haters, which in his mind was anyone who opposed the Iraq war. But according to Peter Hecht, he continues to work as a radio guest host on several stations, and he's currently leading opposition to a mosque to be constructed near the World Trade Center attack site. Williams recently lambasted a Manhattan borough president who backs the project, calling him, quote, a Jewish Uncle Tom who would have turned rat on Anne Frank. So our recommendation is that under the entry for stupid horse's ass in the dictionary, they should just put Mark Williams' photo. And Mark, feel free to call us. We'd like to talk about it. Our stat of the day, and this one's somewhat disturbing, is that public confidence in President Obama has reached an all-time low. Nearly 6 in 10 voters now say they lack faith that he will make the right decisions about the country.
course, we should put this in perspective. About 7 in 10 also lack confidence in both congressional Democrats and Republicans. Of course, the part that I find so disturbing about this, uh, as noted in jo- by John McCormick and Catherine Dodge on Bloomberg News, as re- repeated in the San Francisco Chronicle, Americans' disapproval of President Obama's handling of almost every major issue is offering a bullish environment for Republicans in the November congressional elections. Of course, we should note this is all based on the Bloomberg National Poll, and Bloomberg is not exactly a, uh, you know, democratically friendly polling service. And oh yes, oh yes, they do have biases, rest assured. The sad part is simply reporting the news like this, uh, you know, whether it's true or not, gives some people an advantage because it sways people's opinions. People want to do what the herd is doing, don't they? We will have to address the disappointment a lot of us feel uh, with America's 44th president. But I think it'd have to be a snowy day in July before anyone could logically conclude that he is worse than our 43rd president. But let's keep things light today, shall we? Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for longing. After a study by OnePoll.com found that one in five adults in Great Britain is in love with someone other than their partner or spouse. Usually this was a co-worker or a spouse of a friend. And yes, we'd like to know what the stats are in the U.S. of A. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for sitting in a window seat after about 100 people in Laguna Hills, California, staged the annual ritual of mooning the passing Amtrak trains. Said participant Kim Norris, It took me about a week to build up the courage to do this, and another week to talk my husband into it. But it was all worth it. And no, Radio Parallax has no clue as to what in this experience Kim Norris found so rewarding. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for believing in yourself. After nine employees of an Italian real estate agency were badly burned while walking barefoot on a bed of hot coals during a Motivation Day event. Reportedly, the organizer had used the wrong type of wood and coals. I guess they should have called motivational guru Tony Robbins. I think he's big on that sort of thing. Yeah, Mr. McMillan does raise a good point on this. After, say, three or four people have tried to walk across hot coals and are screaming and yelling, what gets the last people to take a chance on it? All right, as a bonus, it was a good and bad week last week for Paul the Psychic Octopus. It was revealed at the conclusion of the World Cup that Paul, an octopus at a German aquarium, had predicted the outcome of all seven of Germany's World Cup games, including its loss to Spain. Paul had made his picks by choosing between two containers of food which displayed national flags on them. So from the octopus's standpoint, I guess you'd have to say that all in all it was a good week last week, but it was also a bad week because (laughs) Martin Rolf 
writing in Sudendeutsch Zeitung, has suggested that it might be time for a little fried octopus. Evidently, Facebook groups had sprung up in Germany calling for him to be publicly executed, and Germans were busily trading octopus recipes. The Spanish, on the other hand, see Paul the Psychic Octopus as a national hero. The Spanish Prime Minister, José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero, no less, has offered to provide bodyguards to protect him. While another top official has suggested that Spain grant the creature political asylum. Radio Parallax feels in this time of heated emotions that we should sit back, realize that it really doesn't make sense to kill the messenger. As it were, because let's face it, the octopus was not determining who was going to win the World Cup game. And frankly, we doubt his psychic abilities. We think he was just lucky. And speaking of being lucky, how about this item? An Australian lawmaker has proposed establishing a gambling hub at Cairns, the city closest to the Great Barrier Reef. Queensland Independent MP Idan McGlinden said that relocating all the state's gaming machines to one city would curb chronic gaming and provide a boost to tourism. And no, we can't explain his logic of how relocating machines would curb chronic gaming. I don't know. I guess it would cure chronic gambling in your neighborhood. I hope this never happens. I had the pleasure of visiting the city of Cairns uh, many years ago, and, and yes, the Australians seem to drop the R from the middle of words. It is written Cairns. But anyway, the city of Cairns is a beautiful place, very tropical, lovely, and I hope to God no one tries to turn it into an Australian version of Las Vegas. I'd like to do some brief follow-up on a brief discussion we had a while back about uh, the fact that uh, yours truly was written up in the Sacramento Bee for having visited 79 countries. I am a huge fan of travel, as is Mr. McMillan, and we highly recommend that you get a passport and do some. And by travel, I mean places like Brazil, as opposed to, say, Reno, or the aforementioned Las Vegas, Nevada. But uh, as pointed out by Spud Hilton, we're not sure if there's any relation to Paris, described as the travel editor and writer of the Bad Latitude blog at sfgate.com, travel isn't about collecting places. According to Spud, he was worried when he realized lately he'd be starting to become a country counter, a passport stamp collector, a destiny trophy hunter. He noted in his column, there are travelers either freakishly goal-oriented or just fiercely competitive, who positively live for setting foot in as many places as possible. He noted that on the surface, the practice is no more harmful than other forms of travel-related collecting. Spoons of the 50 states, smashed pennies, <laughs> photos of emergency rooms, which he says don't ask. But he notes that uh, some of these country counts can be pretty meaningless, no matter how impressive they may seem, because... A simple number doesn't tell you anything other than the traveler crossed a line on a map. Technically, he said, I have visited Haiti, but the experience was no more enlightening about that country than the airport terminal in Auckland was about New Zealand. He said the fact that he has a Republic of Kiribati stamp in his passport doesn't reveal that he was there only four hours with a shipload of other tourists snapping photos of the rustic huts and grass-skirted natives who planned to change into street clothes and watch TV the second our boat was out of sight. He said a few years back, an article in Chronicle magazine covered the obsessive quest by two Bay Area men to each be anointed 
the world's most traveled man. Each had his own set of self-serving standards for the title, and a good portion of the article was devoted to the petty sniping between the two over cheating. While the story covered the two men vehemently competing over seeing the world, or at least about stepping over more lines on a map, in the entire 3,600-word story, there was one word that didn't appear. Culture. Based on the article, anyway, neither man found the need to brag about the vast amount of cultural understanding they gained from spending a couple of hours in an airport in some nation that added to their total count. One of them actually bragged about counting six, quote, countries, unquote, at once by standing on the South Pole. <laughs> I must say, when Sacramento Bee writer Carlos Alcala asked me about countries I'd been to, he was saying, like, you were like claiming like six countries by going to the South Pole, were you? I said, no, I had not, and I have to agree with Carlos and Spud Hilton that that's not travel, that's accounting. The circle did make me think of one friend in particular who loves to brag about to how many countries uh, he has been to, but never seems to have anything interesting to say about any of these places or relate any tales or, or, you know, warm, fuzzy stories about how cool the place was. We say if you go somewhere, experience the place, and come back and share those experiences. That reminds us, we're going to have to bring Willie Weir back on the program, Adventure Bicyclist, because I'm sure Willie's gotten up to some curious tales of foreign places since we spoke to him last. All right, it's not often that stories combine deep sea diving and champagne, but the news out of Stockholm is that divers in the Baltic on a shipwreck have pulled up some bottles of what turned out to be champagne. The bottles are believed to be from the 1780s and were part of a cargo destined for Russia. There's apparently quite a few bottles down, uh, down in the wreck still, but after one was brought up and they popped the cork, they were astonished to find that it was still drinkable. In fact, the divers said it tasted fantastic. It was a very sweet champagne with a tobacco taste and oak. It's believed that 30 bottles remain aboard the sunken vessel and that if each one turns out to be drinkable, it could fetch $68,000 on the open market. And, and again, that's 68000 each. And no, normally champagne does not store well. It does not last long, but apparently these bottles have been in near-perfect storage condition in dark, constant, cold temperatures. Which reminds me, apparently my grandfather bought a bottle of champagne from my mom... That bottle will be 82 years old come this fall, and it's time we cracked it open and tested it. I don't think we're going to be as lucky as the people in the Baltic, but hope springs eternal. Mr. McMillan, by the way, who has extensive diving experience as a licensed commercial diver, reports that uh, Jacques Cousteau... Well, he'll tell the story. What happened? Uh, Jacques Cousteau brought up some uh, Roman amphoras, which had been at the bottom of the ocean for at least uh, 1,900 years or so, and uh, they were full of wine, but the wine tasted like vinegar, he said, when he tried it. So it was good for a salad! By the way, Mr. Mervillon did have a homework assignment of reading a biography of Jacques Cousteau some time ago. How's that going? Gulp. Well, we all have our homework to do, and... Well, one of our mottos in Radio Parallax is that we get around to things sooner or later, not necessarily sooner. Frankly, we will air no story before it's time. All right, we're headed for a break here, but I can't resist this one story here about how uh, there's an effort afoot to strip serpentine of its status as the California state mineral. Well, technically, serpentine isn't really a mineral. 
It's actually a common rock-forming hydrous magnesium iron phyosilicate mineral, which may contain minor amounts of other elements, including chromium, magnesium, cobalt, and nickel. So I guess it's actually the California state rock since 1965. But uh, serpentine offends some people because it contains asbestos. Serpentine was known to be associated with California's gold deposits during the gold rush. It's a rather pretty jade-like uh, green, uh, green stone with a slippery feel to it. I think that's why it's called serpentine. Here's the part that really surprises me. Apparently back in 1965, lobbyists for the makers of asbestos products were among those who urged the state legislators to recognize serpentine as our state rock. In the meantime, of course, health authorities have found out that asbestos can cause cancer and other diseases when the fibers are inhaled and it's no longer mined in the U.S. Going to bat for serpentine is Gary Hayes, professor of geology at Modesto Junior College. And you know what? We're going to have to invite Gary Hayes on this program to talk about this. Because we have to agree that, you know, since not all serpentine contains asbestos... Why don't we just not argue about this and let the legislature go on about its business? I mean, they probably do have more important things to do, but on the other hand, considering the mischief they do get into, maybe arguing about rocks isn't such a bad idea. It might in the end be safer for all of us. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden In the shade He'd let us in Knows where we've been In his octopus's garden In the shade I'd ask my friend 